Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it has been quite some time since I was on the air last, and it's probably been at least a good five days. And for many of you, that seems like a long time, and many of you all were beginning to really wonder, when would Kirk Monroe come back on the air? Well, there's good news to report. I'm back on the air for another segment of Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800 by John Furling. You know, as I've said before, and I can say this again, that there is more to life than just podcasting. Although it is a side hobby of mine, I do enjoy it, but I also have to be reminded that uh, there are so many other things that sometimes take precedent over podcasting. So the key is to just try to find the time to... um, not only just a podcast, but to prepare for uh, an upcoming episode when you know that you have the time uh, to do it. So many of y'all are probably wondering, well, what was going on uh, since I was on the air last? Well, I did start a new side job over the weekend at a a winery where my wife and I are wine club members are, uh, where we are wine club members of, rather I should say, uh, being uh, bird sellers in uh, Goochland County in Virginia. I have a good feeling, though, that um, when it's time to do the next podcast uh, series on the next book that I plan on doing, something tells me that Goochland County uh, will be mentioned a great deal in in the next book. I'm not going to give it away now, but, you know, Goochland County does have um, a lot of unique, uh, rich history to it. It's not far from where I live in Midlothian, uh, but nonetheless, the winery where I'm started to work at uh, part-time from this past weekend being uh, Bird Cellars is a great um, small winery. Uh, it's only open on Fridays through Sundays, but it's uh, on uh, Route 6. It's a nice um, drive. It's There's not a lot of hustle and bustle. It's about a 37-mile drive from where I live, but you know, you know, I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy uh, not only drinking a good glass of wine, uh, I enjoy pouring flights of wine for customers, whether it's a flight of eight or a flight of four, and just um, talking to uh, customers about why uh, bird sellers' wines are great. And uh, the nice thing is, is that um, I have a nice, uh, that the owners of that winery are very uh, down-to-earth people. Um, another thing I got to do over the weekend was uh, my wife and I got to um, watch uh, the Super Bowl with friends of ours whom we haven't seen in uh, some time, and you know, it's always important to uh, be able to get together with uh, friends, especially those that maybe you don't get to see often, because sometimes you never know uh, when something unexpected could come up that could drastically change things. I, I shouldn't sound depressing. Um, I'm not. But sometimes, you know, when you when any of us can hear about someone whom we've known for some time, all of a sudden pass away unexpectedly or something happens that's life-changing for them, I mean, you know, then it's like, gosh, I would have given anything in the world to have seen that person one more time. But knock on wood, that has not uh, been the case uh, for my wife and I, um, especially with the friends that we saw over the weekend. They don't live far from us, but they are good people uh, nonetheless. As a matter of fact, two of them that I saw uh, went to college with me, and uh, we've stayed in touch ever since uh, having graduated uh, 20 years ago. You know, it's hard to believe that it's been uh, 20 years since um, my wife and I graduated from college. Um, 
a lot has happened in the world in the last 20 years. But I'm, but I will always be thankful, and my wife would say the same thing too, that we uh, came through school when we did uh, for an assortment of reasons. Uh, but I will keep those uh, reasons uh, to myself. But I think our primary focus, though, should revert on what we've been learning about in Adams uh, versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800. So our first uh, leadoff question for this uh, podcast segment is going to be the following. What was uh, taking place in 1799 that gave Thomas Jefferson more hope as the 1800, as the election of 1800 loomed around the corner? Okay, 1799, you know, um, that's the final year of the 18th century. Well, for some of you, this may not seem grand, but for others, it is considered grand on a different level. Of course, a lot of times when we think of elections, we think of them as being on the national level, but we forget that elections are on the local level, they are on the state and the national level. So, as 1799, um, as, as the final year of the 18th century began, and 1800 being an election year not far around the corner, elections on the statewide level were taking place. Okay, in 1799, folks, we have 16 states. Three states being Vermont, Kentucky, and Tennessee were added to the Union um, starting around 1791 and after. But elections on the statewide level, most notably in the New England and mid-Atlantic regions, took place. And do these elections that are taking place in the New England and mid-Atlantic regions benefit the party that Jefferson represents? Absolutely. Otherwise, if if they didn't benefit um, his party, being that of the Republican Party, then how would Jefferson... How would Jefferson um, be encouraged to have hope? Well, how does this uh, hope, how does this optimism come about for Jefferson? Well, in the mid-Atlantic region, um, when I think of a state in the mid-Atlantic region, how about New Jersey? Republicans won control of their state legislature. That's huge. In Pennsylvania, the party won the state governorship post. And in New England, there were three districts that returned Republicans back into office. But the grandest victory of them all came in New York, where May of 1799, Republicans came away victorious by controlling the state assembly. You know, in 1796, I know Jefferson barely lost that election, but he didn't really... um, get a lot of electoral votes um, in up north. Most notably, he lost all of Massachusetts, and he didn't get all of, um, he didn't get any of New York's electoral votes. Jefferson uh, did better in parts of uh, New England, parts of mid-Atlantic states and in, um, and in the south, but it's interesting um three years after Adams wins the presidency, just how quickly things can change. We even see that in today's modern um, American political system. But it is probably fair to say that when our forefathers were alive, these, um, what do you call it, these uh, stunning election victories 
by one party over the other, it was a big deal. But then again, the style of campaigning that um, politicians did in the 18th century and going into the 19th century paled in comparison to what goes into campaigning in today's um, modern uh, world or 21st century world. I think one factor I can take into play is that candidates in the 18th and 19th century or starting out in the very late 18th century in the early years of America's Republic, candidates weren't spending um, five and ten million dollars or more. They weren't doing any of that. That's not to say that maybe somebody could have given a candidate a generous gift, but nothing like today's uh, time. Maybe accessibility was another factor as well in terms of just how much accessibility um, is so much more widespread now than it was um, in the late 18th century. But um, yes, nonetheless, it, it is almost like a mini revolution on the statewide level and that Republicans have um, achieved successes that were totally un unfathomable to think a few years earlier. Uh, most notably in places like New Jersey, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, and um, just to name a few of uh, a few states where um, the thought of Republicans um, doing something as significant as as winning um, not just uh, say a governorship post, but by controlling uh, state legislative assembly bodies, it is a big deal. You know, John Adams won New York's 12 electoral votes in 1796. Virginia, though, had 20, but for New York to have had 12 electoral votes, that might as well have been like the equivalent of Virginia's 20, just in terms of New York being a large state. But for John Adams to have won New York's 12 electoral votes in 1796 was a big deal, considering that he won the presidency. But it is fair to say that all of a sudden now, that um, that with this uh, change in momentum on a party basis, John Adams knows that um, that the presidential electors in New York got chosen by the state legislature. Remember, each state has its own ways of or own um, rules on how to go about um, selecting its. Um, presidential electors, uh, six of the, at least seven of the uh, 16 states had um, had a particular set method, and then the other uh, states uh, pretty much um, allowed it to where uh, people, were uh, the voters, those whom were eligible to vote, could uh, choose uh, the electors. So, yes, for John Adams, this is a big deal. He knows now that, um, that, um, that given that for New York that the presidential electors in the state of New York got chosen by the state legislature, it left him in a state of shock and perhaps the Federalists in shock by uh, with regards to change in party control, especially as 1800 isn't far away. So whereabouts in New York was this, really became the centerpiece to the Republican victory uh, statewide? New York City. And uh, Republicans won all contested seats to where people in general um, knew that the Federalists were facing an uncertain future 
given the party's lack of solid unification. So, you know, think about it. When I think of uh, lack of unification, I think of um, someone like Mr. Alexander Hamilton on uh, one side of the um, political spectrum of the Federalist Party, who what we might think of as an ultra-rightist or a, uh, someone who is just an ultra-federalist. And then you have those um, in the center of the Federalist Party. So really, there it might be fair to say that the Federalists are what we call that conservative-moderate um, branch or the conservative-moderate spectrum. I'm beginning to wonder if the party is uh, hanging on by a thread in a very, very, um, what do you call it, a uh, slim thread, um, a thread that uh, doesn't have much of a backbone. Why did such a drastic switch in party affiliation take place within New York? Well, for one, 90% of the state's population resided in rural areas. Okay, we got to think about it. I mean, you know, New York, I could see how 90% of the state's uh, population there would reside in rural areas, but I think it's fair to say that even in the Republic's early years, 90% of Americans were still living in rural settings. That means only about 10% of America was living in cities, uh, cities like Boston, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New York City. That's uh, quite a um, disparity, but then again, not all disparities are bad, but it's just what it is. So 90% of New York State's population is residing in rural areas. Not only uh, does that uh, comprise of farmers, but to um, artisan um, workers, or what we would call skilled laborers. Secondly, in 1796, nearly two-thirds of the state's voters were too poor to where they didn't own property. So, okay, if you didn't own property, for one, you can't, you really aren't able to vote at all. But two, is it fair to say that maybe two thirds of these voters or just people in general didn't know any better and just decided, okay, um, I guess I'll go with the Federalists since they're the ones that, um, since they're the ones that uh, cater to so many people around around us, and they're the they're the ones that are commonly heard of. I mean, what what's a Republican? However, um, within a short period of time, many of these um, voters who um, who were too poor to where they didn't own property. I mean, they could still vote. Um, if, if I um, messed up a moment ago, uh, do forgive me, but um, they feel it's, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that they're starting to feel alienated. But they also feel alienated because they see cracks or tensions within the Federalist camp. They see these tensions that don't have any um, that don't have any solutions to being resolved by uh, people. It could be that, let's say, Okay, let's say you have 10 members of the Federalist Party in New York. You've got seven who are ultra-Federalist, and then you've got three who are moderate. So the more ultra-Federalists you have over moderate, it's going to mean uh, one thing, an ununified party. 
not just in New York, but perhaps elsewhere where uh, Federalists, where Federalists already have strongholds, but those strongholds are uh, hanging by a thread to where they could uh, see a reversal, a party reversal, where it becomes now the Republican stronghold. Cracks in the Federalist Party were not confined to just New York City. Large number of workers saw the Federalists as the party whom catered to the gentry, the wealthy, the elite, people whom did not work with their hands. In other words, people who don't want to get their hands dirty, people who don't want to put in eight or nine hours work, people who don't want to break a sweat, people who don't want to get their overalls dirty, people who are more concerned, in a sense, the Federalists are representing people who are more concerned about property holdings, including financial status. In other words, they're more concerned about where they stand in the greater social hierarchy of society. They're more concerned about uh, whom they're going to pass on their um, estate to, uh, that is the next generation. They're more concerned about um, which family, um, they're more concerned about whom their son or daughter is going to marry into in terms of, um, you know, uh, what do you call it, family connections where the money stays in the hands of the elite and not to, the, and it doesn't even have a chance of spreading to the masses. Maybe it's fair to say that the Federalists are still in that I, me, myself mentality. Is it fair to say that the Jeffersonian Republicans are trying to become that party is, that's going to be the opposite? The party of us, we, ourselves. In other words, the greater good. How is, this, how is, how is what will happen down the road going to affect the larger uh, population? instead of only the wealthiest 1 to 2 percent. Is it fair to say that Thomas Jefferson was the first elected official or the first government official in whom pointed out the Federalist Party's faults? Yes. He viewed the party as one that didn't represent interests of the many, or the masses, but preferred focusing on the few, you know, the powerful, those whom didn't see the Federalist shortcomings earlier now began to see them appearing more frequently where they were losing touch or focus with everyday people. Maybe it's fair to say that Jefferson is was the first to see the Federalists as a, I don't know if I would say an evil party, but a, a party that was beginning to lose its relevancy a party that was beginning to um, beginning to lose its touch, a party that um, a party that's only going to be able to exist for a temporary period of time. In other words, maybe he's starting to see the Federalists as a party that does not have long-term um, solutions geared towards getting America on the right track, not just in the next four years but well after the next four years. Federalists uh, didn't place much faith in people below. <laughs> what do I mean by people below? 
uh, those who were well below the wealthy and gentry statuses. Federalists preferred having a social structure system, one that was based on hierarchy like what England had in place. And whenever I think of a uh, social structure or a social hierarchy structure, if you go to Jamestown, if you go to the Jamestown Yorktown Visitors Center, um, that's the the the, the uh, museum um, where you can go to and actually um, get on the uh, three ships, uh, the uh, Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the Discovery. But inside the museum, there is a section of of, of what uh, colonial of what life would have been like in England right before and around the time when the first um, group of men came to what we now know as Jamestown, Virginia in 1607. There was, there's a hierarchy that pretty much um, goes from top, from the highest being the, the highest you can go in terms of where one stood in society, in society to the lowest point. And it almost does remind me, after I read this book, it did remind me a little bit of... Um, of that English hierarchy structure system. In other words, the government in England and Parliament would have would have been passing legislation that for the most part would have probably probably been benefiting maybe 10% of the greater English English society. That 10% being those who are wealthy, those who are going to have a greater say in the government. Whereas the other 90% will just have to suck it up and go along with what the other 10% um, have in store for, uh, for the greater good of England. And it was kind of like that in uh, Virginia with the House of Burgesses. The Burgesses, um, up until the time when, um, when uh, the colonies uh, went into rebellion and against the mother country for her... Um, injustices, most notably with the Stamp Act and the Townshend duties, the House of Burgesses prior to that was enacting legislation that only benefited about 10 percent of uh, the greater uh, population in Virginia. So if you don't fall in that 10 percent range, then how are you going to benefit from anything? Because you don't have a say. Not only do you not have a say in, in your government, but no matter what you say in opposition that doesn't benefit you will automatically uh, you know, get turned down. So, you know, this um, system that the Federalists have, this social structure system to me is one that's outdated. It's uh, irrelevant. You know, the country's growing. I mean, there's 16 states. We're probably close to around 5 million people. There's westward expansion uh, into that Northwest Territory, I mean, how are the Federalists going to be able to reinvent themselves if they are so concerned about a social structure system that's based on hierarchy? It's just not going to cut it, especially as um, the dawn of a new century is just around the corner and given that an election year is coming up here soon. But uh, since 1791, uh, Republican newspapers had been chipping away at Federalist policies that in their eyes had done more harm than good, most notably uh, when it came to uh, defying the 1798 Alien and Sedition Acts along with the Jay Treaty from 1794. 
Whom uh, helped lay the groundwork behind uh, the Republican victory in New York City come spring of 1800? Mr. Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr um, saw a golden opportunity and seized on it. You know, yes, he finished fourth uh, about in 1796 in the presidential election, but Aaron Burr knew that um, something had to be done in order to get um, in order to get um, the word out about the Republicans or the Jeffersonian Republicans in his neck of the woods. Well, Aaron Burr goes about opening his doors to party workers, and he also speaks at street rally events. So it's one thing to, to want to get people to, um, sh to change their party allegiances. It's one thing to, to say, this is why you should come and join um, the opposition. But in order to do that, you got to sell it. Yeah, you can talk all you want, but how about uh, speaking at street rally events? And identifying yourself with everyday skilled workers whom get their hands dirty, whom know, whom know what it's like to work eight or nine hours, whom aren't afraid to work till the sun goes down. You know, if you can't identify yourself with those people or, or make an attempt to, to know um, what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, then how are you going to win the voters? And see, that's what the Federalists aren't doing. The Federalists aren't interested in people whom do not fit the gentry status because they know that they can't offer anything to those people. Which, which to me, is um, it's not, uh, it's, it's not um, a good political strategy. Aaron Burr proved to be an effective insider with regards to understanding how the politics or how politics shaped those whom worked yeah, in non-mercantile positions where uh, rewards favored had favored the few over the many during um, the New York State election to where the opposite election outcomes arose being Republican victories. So, did the Federalists have candidates? Uh, yes, but their candidates comprised of bankers to attorneys. Now, I don't see anything wrong with attorneys because, you know, attorneys were prevalent on both sides. But when I think of bankers, who can afford to go to a bank, to do business with a bank? Someone who's wealthy, someone who's got a lot of money. Most middling families you know, middling farmer families who make about 12 pounds a year. That's not to say that they couldn't go to a bank. But if they only have about 12 pounds of, of income, I think they're, nine out of ten of those middling families are going to probably feel more comfortable using the money on on their end rather than, rather than go to a bank and only to have um, a banker... Uh, improperly um, invest their money or um, not or, or not give them the most sound uh, financial advice for the for that day and time so for these federalists who have um, who um, what do you call it um, had candidates these candidates struggled to identify themselves with everyday people well what did John Adams or I should say President Adams do between uh, May 5th and May 7th of 1800. 
Was it something that was relevant? Was it something that needed to be done um, in order to um, reshape his image for the better? Yes. He shook up the cabinet by removing, or rather I should say firing, Secretary of State Timothy Pickering, including dismissing uh, James McHenry, uh, the Secretary of War. He still kept uh, Oliver Wolcott on, but John Adams felt that both of these men had not done an efficient job in their posts. He felt that um, he came to realize at the end that Timothy Pickering and James McHenry were going behind his back, stabbing him. You know, Adams had, con had, confide had confided with them on matters that he felt were important, but what had men like Pickering and um, McHenry done? Well, yes, they stabbed him in the back, but by doing so, going to Alexander Hamilton, you know, Alexander Hamilton's not even in the administration, but that's not to say that he still carries clout, meaning that he carries a lot of power, and they're sharing sensitive information with Alexander Hamilton, you know, largely in part because they don't like... Um, the proposals that Adams has suggested. They don't, they didn't like some of his, uh, or really any of his policies on how to handle the situation in France. <laughs> so they didn't like the fact that Adams went as far as going to, um, is making a decision without even, without consulting the members of the cabinet. But then again, Adams already knew what was going to happen. So basically it's a situation that's a no win, no win matter. It's a situation where no matter what John Adams does, he knows that his cabinet is not satisfied, especially men like Timothy Pickering and James McHenry. So Adams fires these men, and, and, and he fires them, but Alexander Hamilton and James McHenry and Timothy Pickering blame him for the debacle in New York State that led to the Republican takeover in the State Assembly. So, you know, things happen for a reason. They happen like this even in the late 18th century going into the 19th century. But, you know, no matter what the outcome was, it is fair to say that there were those whom were not satisfied and that there were those whom uh, wanted to take it out on someone from within their own party. I tell you, the Federalists are in trouble, folks. They don't get their act together. Who's to say that that a party like the Federalists might still be around um, ten or twelve years? You know, thing. You know, we have to keep in mind that uh, while yes, the Democrat, the modern day Democrats, Democratic and Republican parties have been around for a long time, but we should be reminded that America has seen its share of other political parties come and go where they did not survive uh, for a variety of reasons. Or some of those parties became spinoffs of the modern two-day parties uh, that we know of today. President Adams ended up naming John Marshall of Virginia as the new Secretary of State. It was a move that pretty much sought to shore up uh, potential support in the South, most notably Virginia being the largest of the 16 states, come uh, December in 1800, that is. Republican papers um, praised John Adams' decisions behind removing Timothy Pickering and James McHenry. 
whereas the Federalists as a whole were left shocked, most notably Alexander Hamilton, whom feared that if Thomas Jefferson were to become president, that he would radically change many of things, like the existing Constitution. Hamilton was truly convinced that Jefferson could wipe out the Constitution altogether and replace it with a, a document that would be inspired by French revolutionary ideals or concepts. However, um, come May of 1800, uh, ha Hamilton himself saw that America was truly on the eve of revolution. We're not talking military. We're not talking about overthrowing. Uh, we're not, how do I say? It? We're not talking about declaring independence. But the eve of revolution here is that we could be on the cusp of seeing one party lose its dominance and the opposing party beginning to assert its dominance largely due to being able to um, not just so much reinvent itself, but to be able to um, identify with uh, those who no longer feel comfortable um, on the, si on the uh, Federalist side. Had uh, the presidential election campaign of 1800 begun prior to the start of 1800? Uh, yes. Campaigning itself had begun as early as November 1799, a full 13 months ahead of time when the actual election day took place uh, come December 1800. So, you know, in today's time, we know that uh, candidates uh, start campaigning prior to uh, when an election year begins, usually a year out, but hey, there was nothing new about this um, even in the late 18th century going into 1800. Uh, how many government departments existed uh, during the time that John Adams was in the high office? I'll give you a number. It's between uh, five and seven. Uh, the answer is five. Those departments are the state. Those departments were the State Department, the Treasury, the Justice, and then, uh, well before it would have been called in today's time, the Department of Defense. You had the Department of War, and there was also the Department of Navy. Why was there a Department of Navy? Um, well, one reason I could say why there would have been a Department of the Navy is because um, more Americans felt comfortable having um, having their waters be protected, and that is by uh, you would need um, ships of men um, patrolling the waters versus wanting a standing army. Think about this. A navy would always be in need in time of peace, but a navy would always need to be, pre be present even in a time of war. Many Americans are under this assumption that, okay, we've de we defeated the mightiest empire in the world uh, just shy of 20-some years ago. Who would want to come back and um, attack us again on our own soil? Whom would want to go to war with us? We don't have any enemies. I mean, sure, we might have some issues with France overseas. Sure, we might have issues with England. But who's going to want to step on our soil and wage war on us? Well, I don't want to give away anything, but for those of you who were with me uh, almost two years ago when we did uh, Steve Vogel's Through the Perilous Fight um, from the Star-Spangled uh, Banner um, 
from the burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner in the six weeks that saved America. Um, for those of you who haven't read that book, I strongly recommend reading it. And to make a long story short, uh, the War of 1812 was considered to be America's second war for independence. So if you read that book, you, you will get a, a strong um, appreciation for, for uh, realizing that America did have to fight a second war with England in terms of being able to truly assert herself as an independent nation. But anyways, um, I would like to stay on focus uh, with what we're discussing here. Uh, but yes, there were five um, departments. And just be reminded of how many departments there are now. There was no Homeland Security when John Adams was president. But at the same time, maybe it is fair to say that that the uh, Department of War, the Department of Navy, would have been the closest thing to a Homeland Security Department of the 18th uh, century. June 15th of 1800, an executive order was signed into place by President Adams requiring all department heads or officials of uh, departments of uh, Treasury, um, State, Justice, uh, War, and Navy to begin uh, conducting business affairs at the new capital. What is that new capital, folks? D.C., a.k.a. Washington, D.C.? You're going to like this one. The government was so small to where archives from all five departments got placed into less than ten packing cases. The answer is actually seven. Seven packing cases total. It just makes me appreciate how the scope of government has evolved and changed over these years. Of course, uh, what do you call it? Archives... Uh, getting placed into um, less than 10 packing cases probably was a big number for that time. But if our forefathers were alive today, I think they would be blown away at just how many different governmental departments there are. But then again, as the population has changed over the years and and the needs and demands for so many other things have, have evolved, I think it would be overwhelming for our forefathers if they saw all of this. So maybe it's a good thing that they aren't alive to see how drastically government has changed based upon the needs of the greater uh, public. As John and Abigail Adams left Philadelphia before May of 1800 ended, did President Adams on his way to the new Capitol site engage in any campaigning? He did. Where would he have made stops along the way? Well, let me ask you this. He's leaving Philadelphia. Of course, uh, Washington, D.C. is south of Philadelphia. But do you think he would have taken a route similar to what we know of today as going straight down Interstate 95 south from Philadelphia to Washington? No, there were no interstates in uh, the 18th century. Interstates won't come until the 1950s. But John Adams did um, travel along a path um, that, where he left Philadelphia and went as far west into Pennsylvania as uh, York and Lancaster. Um, so, think about it. I mean, he went from left Philadelphia on his uh, horse and carriage, going into York and Lancaster. He made stops there to campaign. 
And then he went um, south into um, Frederick in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Frederick, Maryland is about 40 miles west of Baltimore. And um, he campaigned there. And then he eventually went southward to his final destination being D.C. So most people would think, isn't that odd to take that kind of a route, leaving Philadelphia to go west into Lancaster and York? Well, think about it. It was probably a better route traveled. It was probably better navigable. You know, people back then didn't know any better, but they did what was necessary. We have to keep in mind that Adams probably did stay at uh, places along his way back, on his way to his new destination. You know, there was no Air Force One. Uh, there was no uh, motorcade. There were no Secret Service agents back then. There was no Secret Service. Adams basically would have gotten advice from people around him who would have said, hey, this is the best route to take. And he took their word for it. Of course, when I think of roads around D.C. in today's time, yes, I think of the Capitol Beltway, Interstate 95. Uh, but, of course, there is another um, road that goes into D.C., but it goes well west of D.C. It's uh, Route 50, or U.S. 50, that starts in Annapolis, Maryland, and it goes as far west as Sacramento, California. So let's just you know be appreciative of the fact, folks, that um, our forefathers... They, they didn't have the, the best of roads to travel on. And, of course, we do have the late George Washington, whom died in 1799. But prior to his death, he was the one who was very instrumental in uh, proposing that um, inland waterways. Uh, for those of you who were with me uh, when we talked about wetting of the waters, uh, the Erie Canal, and the making of a great nation, George Washington, we have him to thank for... Um, for suggesting that inland waterways be established so that mass quantity of goods can be could be transported um, to where um, by water to where traveling by water would take less time than uh, than a conventional horse and buggy on roads that were not um, suited to handle uh, mass quantities of goods. And if any of you who are new to my podcast, whom have not read uh, Wedding of the Waters, I strongly recommend uh, reading that. And you can also listen to the podcast series I did on that uh, book, Wedding of the Waters, the making of the Erie Canal and the making of a great nation um, on my uh, podcast. So uh, John Adams um, arrived to Washington come early June of 1800. He lodged at a hotel for 10 days nearby the Capitol. And while he was there, he visited Martha Washington, the widow of George Washington, at Mount Vernon. He attended dinners, teas. He went as far as even inspecting government buildings and determined that the home of the Treasury Department was the only one completed and ready for occupancy. Well, I tell you, John Adams is, hasn't missed out on anything. I mean, I know Abigail, his wife, would have given anything in the world to have stayed in Philadelphia. She doesn't feel really good about Washington, and I don't believe she'll be the first nor the last to feel um, good about it right away. But with time, people's minds, or people's thoughts, rather, do change. 
Uh, was Richmond, Virginia, a Federalist or Republican stronghold? It turns out it was a, a Federalist stronghold. Thomas Jefferson campaigned in Richmond come the spring of 1800 to bolster his support amongst the undecided. Jefferson turned to letter writing as a means of addressing the party platform in terms of its issues to selling personal beliefs behind what government ought to represent. You know, Jefferson isn't one who's much on public speaking. And as we have learned, he's not very big on conflict, or he's rather, I should say, he's not good with conflict, whereas John Adams was. But if there is one thing that Thomas Jefferson can make up for it is through his writing, his ability to write. And I will tell you this much, folks. um, I learned this um, through an author. And I'm going to mention his name again somewhere later on down the road in this um, podcast uh, book series. But his name was Dumas Malone. Dumas Malone, um, he's been gone for a little over 35 years. I never met the man, but my father did uh, back in the early 80s. As a matter of fact, uh, Dumas Malone autographed um, one of the last books he did on Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Basically, Dumas Malone, back in 1975, won the Pulitzer Prize for his, uh, at the time, it was a uh, five-volume biography series on Jefferson and his time. Uh, the sixth book was written in ni- around 1981, 1982, called uh, Thomas Jefferson, the Sage of Monticello. Long story short, Dumas Malone uh, studied all of Jefferson's letters. Does anybody want to take a guess at exactly how many letters Jefferson wrote in his lifetime as an adult? Or maybe not so much as an adult, but maybe from the time he was in, uh, a student at William & Mary up until he died? 20,000. I don't know if Dr. Dumas Malone studied every one of the letters, but he read, but he, but he uh, read numerous letters that were in existence that Jefferson had written. Jefferson was a voracious writer, and not just a reader, but a voracious writer, and um, and so um, by being a voracious writer, that's how he was able to sell. Um, the platform issues, as well as uh, personal beliefs behind what government ought to represent. And uh, so to be able to do that in terms of writing is very essential. Now, did Alexander Hamilton campaign on John Adams's behalf prior to December 1800? Do any of you all think Alexander Hamilton did campaign on John Adams's behalf prior to December 1800 being Election Day time? No. Rather, um, I hate to say this, but uh, Alexander Hamilton spent more time berating John Adams for everything, for every mishap made during his administration. Hamilton went as far as accusing Adams of being completely inept, that is, incapable of performing duties before him. Hamilton believed America was far better under a man like Washington who knew how to get stuff done. Hamilton may be partly right on that, but what Hamilton doesn't want to admit is that there were men in Washington's and Hamilton's cabinet who were hang who were holdovers from the final years of Washington's administration whom did not want to work with John Adams. And who knows? <laughs> I don't know this. And I don't have any information on it, but to me, it kind of almost kind of sounds like a conspiracy that uh, 
but Hamilton and Pickering and McHenry were all out to get John Adams. That's a shame, but hey, it does happen from within the party. Did Federalists and Republicans both find Hamilton's attacks on President John Adams to be offensive? Yes. Each party viewed Hamilton as someone whom was hell-bent on revenge, given he had not already attained a greater status. And what was that greater status that Hamilton would, would like to achieve somewhere down the road? That of the presidency. But the more vicious the political attacks became, men on each side viewed him as vindicative, evil, to where the man found fault with everyone, including all Federalist moderate um, politicians, whom supported John Adams for having taken stands against the, those ultra-Federalists, or what we call the hardliners like James McHenry and Timothy Pickering. Hamilton's attacks on Adams led many to believe deep down that he wanted Jefferson to emerge as the presidential winner in 1800, given that within four years after being 1804 that the Federalist Party would reemerge stronger to where Hamilton had a better chance of getting the party nomination for president. Is it... Fair to say that Alexander Hamilton was one whom hate hated to lose? Yes. Yes, we do have candidates who don't like to lose. We also don't we also have candidates who um, don't like to face reality or politicians for that matter on both sides, even in today's um, modern day um, political instability. But, of course, in today's time, it's on a much grander scale uh, for reason for an assortment of reasons that probably go beyond the sky's ceiling compared to what the Republic's early days were like in the late 18th century into the start of uh, a new uh, century. By 1800, were there more Republican newspapers versus Federalist ones? Yes, going into 1800... 40% of America's political newspapers catered to Republican politicians and voters. The increase first came about in 1798 following the Alien and Sedition Acts, which had made it an offense, a.k.a. crime, to question the government, including all government officials, through means of publishing articles via print. Remember um, that... If anybody questioned the government, along with government officials, they ended up in jail. And to me, this was seen as a violation of free speech. You know, Tom, that, Thomas Jefferson saw it that way. Um, a lot of everyday, ordinary Americans saw that. Uh, Republicans uh, went about establishing committees of correspondence, societies, clubs to help get their agendas out amongst the greater public. The Republican press hadn't been as harsh towards um, John Adams, unlike Mr. Hamilton, but the Republican press did charge President Adams for, for being at fault with what particular uh, matter. Well, Congress can, um, 
debate bills. They can um, debate on sub de- debate any subject on the floor that comes before um, before the the greater body. You know, um, an amendment has to um, pass through a committee to be able to be brought to the floor for a greater debate. You know, if it if both uh, houses of Congress or both you know the, the the Senate and the House of Representatives, both chambers of Congress agree to um, to a, a measure, and they uh, work out their um, differences, and they bring it before uh, the president, and with the intent on doing what that the president signs the bill into law. So did John Adams as president sign the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798 into law? Yes, he did. And the Republican press the Republican press um, is holding him accountable, meaning that he is to be held at fault. Because this law, remember what did it do folks? It severely curtailed people's rights to free speech when questioning something that they felt was unjust on the part of the government. So it's one thing to to uh, not be completely gung-ho on a matter, but John Adams did sign the, the bill. He signed it because he was worried about, um, about the great flux of uh, people coming in as exiles from France. You know, it's one thing to not like something that the government's doing. It's one thing to question what a government official is doing. But in John Adams's eyes, he's, uh, his reasoning is like the equivalent of a lawyer. Okay? All right, if you don't like what's going on, do you have uh, proof as to why you don't like it? Do you have proof as to why, um, as to why you feel that this person has done something that has offended you? You know, for John Adams, it's one thing, in his eyes, it's one thing for someone to make the accusation, but they need to have, um, their claims need to have merit. If they don't have merit, then how can their claims be valid? Well, we have to remember that um, legislation, yes, legislation must be relevant, but at the same time, um, even when something does get signed into law, that doesn't mean that the bill itself um it doesn't mean that everybody lives happily ever after. There will constantly be people out there who will find something wrong about a piece of legislation for better or for worse. But you can't uh, sentence someone to uh, jail or fine them up to $5,000. So this is where the Republican press can, um, can go after John Adams on, you know, it's, it was one thing for uh, members of his party to want the legislation passed. It was another thing that, that John Adams went along and, and signed the legislation. Is it possible that it could come back and backfire on him come election time? Maybe. But we'll have to find out here somewhere down the road when I'm on the air again next. When I'm on the air again next time, we're going to learn more, um, more details about this um, election because we are really now in the heart of of true election season. Thank you for your time as always, and I hope to be back on the air again soon, and hopefully it will be uh, less than five days from now. Take care for now, and um, wherever you all are, stay safe. Good day.